In Jesus, you see the perfect picture of humility and zero modesty. One time he was he was out and um, the, the children who were who were second class citizens in first century Judaism or in Judea wanted to come and talk to Jesus. And they were trying to get to Jesus and the, the, the uh, uh, disciples were, were, were boxing them out. You know, they were doing their best to keep the kids away from Jesus. And Jesus said, guys, stop. Stop trying to keep them away from me. Let the children come to me. And he hangs out with the kids. Another picture, Jesus is um, having a meeting with, with some religious leaders in a house, in a room. And the, this, the door swings open. And a, a, the Bible says a lady from the city, literally means a prostitute, comes barging into the room. And she falls at Jesus' feet, and she takes out some very expensive perfume, and she begins to, to uh, anoint Jesus or, or wipe his head with this very expensive perfume. And the Bible says that she began to wipe his feet with her tears, and the religious leaders were thoroughly offended by that. They were offended that she would have the audacity to break up their meeting in an, earth, in, in an effort to worship this man named Jesus. And they were also offended that she would take something as expensive as this perfume and waste it, they thought, on Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Did he rebuke the lady? No, he rebuked the, the religious leaders. He said, this is what it looks like to worship. You'll, 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 you, this, this perfume is nothing compared to the value of my life. And he shows great humility in his actions. And I could go story after story after story. Zacchaeus and how he went to his house and, and, and you know, a second class citizen in Judea. Over and over and over again. Story after story of how Jesus showed the perfect picture or was the perfect picture of humility. But when you look at his words, he showed no modesty. You remember earlier in this book, in this series, we said that the crowds came to Jesus and they wanted him to do another miracle because they were hungry. He said, if you want to have food that never go, that never makes you hungry again, you find bread, the bread of life in me. In, in that very same chapter, a few verses later, he, he tells the same crowd, if, if you want to have access to the Father, then you have to eat my my flesh, and you have to drink my blood. I mean, who says that stuff? He shows up at a festival, a party, where they're celebrating God's deliverance from, from captivity and how he provided a light to lead them out and lead them to safety into the wilderness. And they're celebrating this. They're having a party. They're, they're throwing this big old shindig. And Jesus steps out in the middle of that and says, this light is going to go out. If you want a light that covers the whole world, if you, want, if you want to know the light of the world, the light of the world is me. In Jesus, you see the perfect picture of humility and no modesty. And that was on purpose. Because Jesus was always pushing the extreme 
He was always pushing the boundaries of who he was. He, he, he was forcing everybody, every single person that would ever walk this earth to make a decision on him. And there was no middle ground. You were either all in or you were not in at all. And yet, study after study, poll after poll shows that Americans, by and large, are lukewarm on this man that went out of his way to make sure that nobody could make, came to that conclusion. He went out of his way over and over and over again with his stories and, and his articulation of who he was. He went out of his way to make sure nobody would come to the conclusion that Jesus is just okay, that I like him, but with some reservations. I like him, but I don't like his followers. And yet, poll after poll after poll shows that Americans, when it comes to Jesus, are rather lukewarm. I mean, if you think about it, no leader that says the things that Jesus said would we ever even consider. I mean, we would, we would cast him to the outskirts, we'd cast him to the margins as dangerous. But Jesus, when you study who he is, who he, who he uh, claimed to be, as we're trying to do in this series, demands one of two responses. I'm either all in or not in at all. I'm, 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 I believe that he is who he claimed to be, I, and they're true, and therefore I'm all in on this guy. Or he lied, he's dangerous, and he needs to be cast out and never spoken of again. And yet, as I mentioned, Americans, poll after poll after poll, try to split the difference. He's okay, but I've got some reservations about him. He's okay, but he's just another prophet or just another religious man in a long line of religious people all throughout the histories. And Jesus says, that will not cut it when it comes to me. This morning, the claim that we're going to look at, the I am statement that we're going to look at, may be the most outrageous of all. It may be the one that, 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 that's, that's the most extreme of them all. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14. John chapter 14. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be up on the screen, no problem. You'll be able to follow along there. But Jesus claims to be the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father but by me. Our culture bristles at that, pushes back on that, and says it simply cannot be. This morning, I hope to show you that indeed it could be, and it is. Before we jump in, let me kind of set the stage. Jesus is in the last 48 hours of his life. There, he's at the Lord's, or he's at the, the, the Last Supper. We just saw that. And these disciples, they are all in on Jesus. They've decided he is who he claimed to be. Now, they, they, they misunderstand what kind of um, dominion and what kind of uh, 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 rule and reign he's going to have. They think he's going to uh, roll in and, and take over the Roman Empire. He's going to set up a kingdom that they've longed for, that they've been waiting for. But they have gone all in on this guy. They've given up their, their careers. I mean, in that day, you were what your dad was. If he was a fisherman, you're a fisherman. If he was a, uh, 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 
just whatever. If he was a, an accountant, you were an accountant. Carpenter, you were a carpenter. You get the picture. These guys left all of that behind. There was no plan B. Those, those uh, family businesses had passed them over. The succession plan had passed them over. They were good with that. They left everything behind. There was no plan B. They were all in on Jesus. And suddenly, Jesus, who they think is about to take over, who's about to rule and reign, uh, taking over the Roman Empire, starts to talk about this, I'm going away for a while. He starts to say, guys, I'm going to be leaving, and where I'm going, you can't go. Well, Thomas says, Jesus, or, uh, what, what, what are you talking about? I mean, where, where are you going? And how do you get there? I mean, what, what are you, we're all in on here. We're, we're confused. We don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to my father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. So, so that way it's ready for you when you get there. Now, he's not, it's not like going chipping joy at Gaines and, and taking a hammer and remodeling the place. But he's going to prepare a place for us, he said. And Thomas follows it up and he says, well, how do you get there? The place that you're going, how do, how do I get there? So here's what he says. Jesus said to him, you want to know how to get to where I'm going? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. When you're looking at the text in the original language, the, the order of the words show the order of importance. So there's emphasis on the first words in the sentence. So, if you're reading it in the, in, in the original language, it would have said something, something like this. I am the way to the Father because I am truth and life. You can know that I'm the way to the Father. The way that you know that I am the way to the Father is because I am truth and I am life. Because I am truth, because I am life, therefore I am the way to the Father. The, other, the, last, two, uh, the, the last two words, truth and life, give evidence to the fact that he is the way in the original language. Now, as I mentioned before, our culture bristles at that. That's so close-minded. It's so, it's, it's, it's so, uh, uh, it's just, it's just, it can't, cannot possibly be. I mean, it's so simple-minded. It's so exclusive. I mean, that can't possibly be. Jesus, there's no possible way that he could be the only way to the Father. And it seems so exclusive, our culture says. And I would agree. It is. It is exclusive, but it is exclusive to believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. It is exclusive, but it is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. When it comes to eternal life, when it comes to the, the getting, getting to the Father, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to having a relationship with God, when you, when you match Christianity against all other worldviews, religious and non, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity. Now let me try to prove it with two points. Number one is this. Here's what I put in my notes. Number one, it allows Christianity, a worldview that, that is aligned with the scriptures. Number one is this. 
It allows the weakest to come. It allows the weakest to come. Every other world religion and secularist says this, roughly. The good people are in when it comes to heaven. The good people are in and the bad people are out. The good people are in. The good people get to go. The bad people are out. Now, they always include themselves on the good side. I always laugh about that. But the good people are in and the bad people are out. To which I would respond, that seems mighty exclusive. I mean, that seems mighty, that seems mighty, mighty simple-minded. I mean, after all, you, you're, you would consider yourself good, right? I mean, this is based on many conversations I've had like this. You, you would consider yourself good, right? And they always say yes. I'll say, well, why are you good? Well, I, I was raised in a good family. I have morals. And, I, and, and my response is always, okay, what about people that were not raised in a good family? What about people that were not taught good morals? What, what, what about them? That seems mighty exclusive. Christianity invites the weakest, the worst, the immoral, those that acknowledge that they need a crutch. And his name is Jesus. It invites the weakest to come. Now, every once in a while, I'll talk to a person and they'll say, wait, well, you know what? It's not the good and the bad. It's not that the good, only the good get it. Everybody gets in. Everybody gets in. I mean, uh, there, you know, there's a path. Everybody has their own path to God. I mean, it's, it just seems, um, I, I can't be the one to say that there's not many paths to God. And I'll say, really? They'll say, yeah. I'll say, so you think if a person was born into a bad family, they were not taught good morals, and they become a serial killer or go the worst possible crime that you could think of. And they do that habitually all of their life. You think that that path ultimately leads to whatever they call God? And I've never had a person say yes in the conversations that I've had. I've never had a person say yes. They'll always say, well, I, you know, I'm just not sure. If they're that bad, probably not. And I always respond like this then you're more exclusive than Christianity. Because Christianity, the scriptures, a biblical worldview says that you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. You're never beyond the reach of it. You can live a a life that, that is opposed to God, but if you will humble yourself, you will seek his face, and you will ask him for forgiveness. You will, you will uh, uh, admit that you need a Savior. You will understand that your only fitness is that you cannot be fit. Then God's grace extends even to that person. Christianity is exclusive, but it's the most inclusive exclusivity worldview there is. Because why? Number one, it invites the weakest to come. Number two, if you're a believer, you have a Christian worldview, your worldview is the only worldview that does not allow you to feel superior to people who don't hold your beliefs. If you're a believer, your worldview 
is the only worldview that does not allow you to feel superior to people who don't hold your beliefs. You can look at everybody else and you cannot feel superior. Why? Because you're saved by grace. It is not by your own works so that nobody can boast. We can, I can look at my neighbor who's a very moral person. The Smiths, we, we love her. Love her. She's, a, she's an old, a bit older, about our parents' age. She's gone through a, a tough time. Very moral. But I can't feel probably more moral than us. But, it, but that's okay because my, my salvation is not based, based on my merits. It's not based on my, on my morality. It's based on God's grace. And only Christianity can say that. Every other religion is based on some level of merit, on some level of gain, on some level of, of working your, your way into favor with God. Well, if, you're, if you've worked your way into favor with God, anybody who has not worked their way into favor with God is, is looked down upon just by definition. You cannot say, I'm in and you're out, but you're better than me. There's no possible way to do that. Therefore, you must, by definition, feel superior to those people that are out. Only Christianity says, I'm in because of Jesus, because of his grace, so that I can never boast about it. Only Christianity, only a Christian worldview allows you to look at other people who do not share your worldview and not feel superior to them. What about a secularist? Somebody who would say, okay, it's not about the good in the good in and the bad out. I mean, I understand what you're saying there, but I just think everybody gets there. I mean, I think all roads get there. And while I think I've, I've sort of kind of edged that and talked about that a little bit, let me just take it a step further. Somebody who would say, you know, God's like, it's like a map. God's at the top. I've got my way. You've got your way. You know, they've got their way. If I was born in India, I would probably be a Buddhist. So that's going to take me. If I was born in, in another area of the world, like where uh, my brother Jeremy is, is working, you'd be Hindu. Uh, uh, you know, it's just all roads lead. And, and I have my way. I just do the best that I can. I'm a secularist. I do the best that I can. I mean, nobody could possibly claim to have all the truth. Nobody can possibly do that. Leslie Newbigin, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, sums up the problem of this view. That all roads get to God. The belief that all roads get to God. Here's what he says. He does it by telling a story. Nobody, no, no one religion, no one faith, no one worldview can have all of the truth. Instead, every, every religion, every, every worldview has a little bit of the truth. And he tells the story like this, that every religion is like a blind man. And truth is like an elephant. And so Christianity um, has a part of the truth, and, and Hindu, and uh, Islam, and uh, Buddhist, and, and just people, secularists that are trying to be good. Everybody has a little bit of the truth, and they're like a blind man. And they come to the elephant, and they feel the trunk of the elephant, and they say, the uh, truth is, is, is like a hose. 
And then the, the, the next religion or the next blind man comes to the elephant. They feel the, the, uh, the, the, the foot of the elephant. They say, no, 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 truth is like a, it, it's, it's like a tree trunk. Then the third one comes to the elephant and says, well, no, it fills the tail of the elephant. They say, no, truth, it's like, it's like a string. I mean, that's what truth is. Truth is so big, it's so enormous, it's so complex that no religion could ever possibly claim to have all of it. Here's what Newbegin says about that. The problem with that story is the only way that you can conclude that every religion has part of the truth is if you see the whole truth. The only way to say that every religion is blind is to think you're not. The only possible way to say no one has superior knowledge is to assume you have the very superior knowledge that you suppose nobody can have. Therefore, even secular relativists must conclude that they are better than anybody who does not share their worldview. They must have an arrogance and an, an air of superiority to people who don't believe like them because they are claiming for themselves something that they will not grant to somebody who holds a biblical worldview. This morning, as we examine the scriptures and we see Jesus for who he claimed to be, is he exclusive? Yes. Is he the only way to the Father? I believe the scriptures teach that. Yes. But everybody is exclusive. And, in, and Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity. When it comes to God, that there is. Why? Because even the weak are welcome. You are never, you have never stretched too far from God's grace. Even the weak, even the weary, even the war, worn, even the poor are welcome. The least of these are welcome. And number two, only Christianity can look at the world and not feel superior to people who do not share our worldview. If you have ever met a believer, met a Christian, somebody with a Christian worldview who does not exemplify this, it is only because of a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because our salvation, our access to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life is not based on our own merit. It is based on God's grace to us. So that nobody can boast about it. Here's how he concludes. Here's what he says. Next verse. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Next verse. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Jesus says, you want to know what the Father is like? Look at me. If you want to know what the Father would do in a situation, look at me. 
Because the Father and I are one. If you, if you wonder what it's like to have a relationship with the Father, look at me. It's found in me. If you want to move God from a, from a, a, a boss or a, fear, a fearful relationship, and you want to have a familial, a family relationship, you want to have a, a father and a, and a child relationship, you find that through me. My dad, he, he, he was a, one of the uh, uh, executive pastors, which basically meant he was over all of the staff at a very large church growing up. He had a couple hundred people that were under him that reported to him ultimately. And, and every once in a while, people would, uh, would, would you know, be doing their jobs, and, um, eventually, and, and they would have to lose their job because of it. My dad would have to fire them for whatever reason. And when he would come home, sometimes he would say that I had to do something. I had to obey him, and I would disobey. Let me promise you one thing. I never, ever feared being fired like the person at work. Why? Because those were not the terms of my relationship with him. I didn't have to fear that. I didn't have to worry about that. Because we, we had a father and a son relationship. He was an imperfect dad, yes, but he was all in on me and my brother. Just like I'm all in on my kids. Imperfect dads, yes. But we were all in on our kids. And I know if you were up here, you would say the same thing. They've done things that have cost you thousands of dollars probably. In an effort to make right what they broke. And that didn't matter to you. You were all in on those kids. Why? Because they're yours. They belong to you. And that's the standard. That's the basis of the relationship. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in here. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at His Son. Look at me. You want to have access to the Father? You find it in me. You're scared of my Father? You don't have to be scared anymore. You can have a family relationship, a familial relationship, so that you're not worried about the the results, the repercussions. Because you're found in His grace. Let me close out with this, this story. It's a story you've all heard of if you've grown up in church at any time at all. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells this parable. It's about a dad and two sons. A dad and, and two sons. The, the dad is raising his two sons, and the youngest one says, you know what, dad, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance, and I want to go live a wild life. I just want to take the money and go, go live out all the town. You know, I only have one life to live. I might as well make the most of it. And he takes the money and he goes out. The Bible t- tells us in Jesus' story that he squanders it. He just he, he wastes it on wild living. A famine comes over the land and he's forced to go live with the pigs. He lives literally in the pigsty. He's fighting the pigs for food. The Bible says that he comes to his senses. And he says, my dad, if I go back to my dad dad's house, and I asked to be a servant, at least they are living better than I am here in this pigsty. I mean, he'll never let me back to be a son, but at least I can be a servant. So he picks himself up, and he starts to work his way back towards his dad's house. And he begins to practice the conversation that he's about to have. He begins to practice his speech. I did that as a teenager when I messed up. Practiced my speech before I got home. Faced the wrath of my dad. And he begins to do the same thing. The Bible tells us that when he was still a long ways off, the father who had been watching for him sees him and he runs after his son. 
And he hugs him. He kisses him on the cheek. And he says, son, welcome home. He doesn't say, go and get in a shower first. I want you, you smell like pigs. You smell like mud. You smell like the muck. He doesn't do that. He gives him a big hug. He says, welcome home. He turns to the servants and he says, guys, my son who I've been waiting for, who was lost, has now been found, who has been gone, has now come home. I want to throw a party. Kill the fatted calf, the most expensive thing that I have to my name. Kill it and let's have a party because my son has come home. Only Christianity. Only our Savior Jesus includes a person like that into his family. No other world religion, no other worldview includes the least of these. Christianity does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that it challenges us. And that it offers us hope, even when we're hopeless, even when we don't deserve it. Father, I thank you that you're the way, the truth, and the life. And we can get to the Father. We have access to the Father. We, we can call him Father, ourselves, because of you. In Jesus' name we pray.